I'm going to read, um, uh, as I've done often, I'm going to read a bit from the beginning, and I'm going to read a bit from uh, the end of uh, the section we have to study. So let's uh, start by reading from chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with my God. Then turn on with me to chapter 50. Reading from verse 4. The same person speaking again. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? They all wear out like a garment, the moths will eat them up. Well, as always, we need the Lord's help to help us to understand uh, this passage. Let's pray and ask, shall we? Lord, it is a strange thing, and yet uh, we know you have taught us, and we know from our own experience that your word is a confusing and uh, an empty book if you do not open our eyes. It's possible to read the Bible perhaps all our lives and never see what it means. But Lord, you are a gracious and merciful God and you are a God who loves to open eyes. So we pray for each one of us here this morning, whatever our experience of you, whatever our knowledge of your word or lack of it, please, Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes, and give us wills and courage, Lord, not to shy away from what we see, but to honestly face what it says and to order our lives accordingly. Please then, Lord, come amongst us, we pray, and do your work. In Christ's name. 
Amen. Now, I wonder, if I asked you what were the most important elements of a really satisfying relationship, what you would say? I actually suspect that if you uh, um, summed up and collated all the answers that we gave, you, you'd come, uh, you could sum them up with two words. Intimacy and permanence. We've got a deep longing for both of those things, I think. You know, our modern um, uh, interest in, in sex, for instance, is not just driven by an animal urge to procreate. It's, it's fueled at a much deeper level by a desire for intimacy. You know, we, we live in a world that is, is actually hostile in many ways to deep relationships, and many, many people today are emotionally starved. And it's not surprising in that environment that we develop a, a, a rather voracious appetite for anything that promises to satisfy that need that we have for intimacy. Sad thing is that sex on its own, I think, can never really give us the intimacy we long for. True, satisfying intimacy can only come when we found someone with whom we can share our, our, uh, our deepest hopes and fears, our, our joys and our disappointments, our pleasure and our pain. And when we found someone who is prepared to share those things with us, when we got that sort of relationship, then there will be true intimacy. And we need those relationships to be permanent, to last. Now, the continuing popularity for marriage, I think, shows that people still regard a permanent relationship as their ideal, even if today we're really rather cynical about whether that is ever possible. We long for intimacy and permanence in relationships. And sadly, our relationships so often disappoint us, don't they? We may get very close to someone and then the relationship falls apart and we are hurt. We may have a long-term relationship, but we actually never dare to get really close to that person because we're frightened of being hurt. And either way, we are disappointed. Now... The even sadder thing, I think, is that so many of us lack that relationship with God. So many of us actually don't really have an intimate relationship with God, whether we confess him as Lord or not. I mean, how can we have that sort of intimacy when he's up there and we're down here? How can we be intimate with, with him and tell him everything about ourselves when uh, actually he never tells us anything about himself? It's a bit of a one-sided relationship. In fact, uh, in fact uh, uh, is it really possible to know God's heart? when he's absolutely all-powerful, as Lynn mentioned that we've been learning over the, over the coming weeks, when, uh, over the previous weeks, when he, uh, when he controls the motion of the stars, the motion of electrons, and everything in between. If he's that 
omnipotent, all-powerful, is it really realistic to have an intimate relationship with him, the way that we've described? And also, many of us fear that we're not going to have a long-term relationship with him either. Because when we look at ourselves, we realise how fickle we are. We realise how weak we are. Perhaps we've even actually experienced, or, or are experiencing at the moment, a period when, when God just seems to be absent from us. And we really can't believe that that relationship that perhaps we enjoyed for a while could ever be permanent. And therefore our relationship with God is not satisfying. Because there is no intimacy. There is no security. I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are a few people here this morning who are sitting here wondering, saying, I wonder why I bothered to come at all. Now, last week, if you were here, we spent some time uh, uh, beginning to see how God does long for an intimate relationship with his people. If you were here, you'll remember he repeatedly said, listen to me. He had deep expressions of, of regret and compassion and love towards his people. They were not the, 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 the words of a detached Judge, they were much more the words of a loving father. But actually this week in the passage before us, we're going, to, we're going to get more deeply into the heart of God. In chapters 49 and 50, Isaiah begins in a clearer way to show us the Son of God, to show us God made man. Actually 800 years before he walked the earth to show us Jesus. If you've actually been here for the last few weeks, you'll know that Isaiah keeps mentioning a servant. It's been a key theme of his. And initially, that servant was clearly Israel. Chapters 40 and 41, Israel was God's chosen servant, and God couldn't desert that servant. Then in chapter 42, we find Isaiah speaking of a faithful servant who will unstoppably bring justice to the nations, will give sight to the blind. Do you remember that? And the question there in, in Isaiah 42 was, could this be the nation of Israel, a reformed nation of Israel who would do the work of God on this earth? But then from the second half of chapter 42 to 44, all the way, Isaiah makes it very plain that Israel cannot be that faithful servant because Israel herself is deaf and blind. She is a failure. Do you remember that? And then from chapter 44 to 48, God shows how nevertheless he is determined to be successful in his plan. He's prepared to use someone like Cyrus, the, uh, the king of Persia, who was uh, rising as a superpower. Cyrus didn't know uh, anything about God. He didn't know God. He would use him as an unknowing servant. But he wanted his people Israel to know him, to love him, to cooperate with him. At the end of chapter 48, concludes very sadly that they are still failing. They still are not the servant that God wants them to be. And then, 
chapter 49, the servant reappears again. This time he is successful, faithful. In fact, he's absolutely unstoppably persistent. But this time the servant is definitely different. Up to now, he could have been Israel almost. But now he is definitely an individual. You cannot read chapter 49 without coming to the conclusion that the servant now is an individual person. You know, some people have actually suggested that Isaiah himself is now the servant. And much of what uh, is said could fit that. But actually, the servant that's being described in 49 is far greater than any prophet could ever have been. For instance, in verse 6, we'll see in a little while, God says effectively, you are so great, servant, that I am going to give you all the nations as your inheritance. Now, God said that to no prophet. Now, they may have been quite great people, but they weren't that great. Actually, there's a clue in the, right at the beginning of chapter 49 that this servant even is divine. You know, the first uh, cry of uh, the servant, listen to me, echoes, doesn't it, what we've, uh, what we've heard back in, uh, in, in earlier chapters. In fact, listen to me is found quite a number of places elsewhere in Isaiah. And everywhere, that phrase is on the lips of God. Prophets don't say, listen to me. They say, thus says the Lord. But this servant says, listen to me. It's only actually in the New Testament that we find such uh, thoughts applied to anyone but God himself. I don't know whether you remember, but uh, on one occasion Jesus went up on a mountain and he was transfigured. He shone brightly, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. <coughs> Isaiah has foreseen Jesus. Chapter 49. He, he gives uh, the servant the title Israel in verse 3, but that's because he, he is now going to fulfill the role that the nation of Israel never could. Now, this is the Son of God speaking to us. This is a fully human yet divine person. And in uh, chapter 49 and uh, the first half of 50, we're actually let in on a fascinating conversation that I want to show you. I'll uh, put it up on the overhead. You've got it on your insert. It's a series of speeches. And uh, basically in 49, 1 to 4, the servant speaks to us. Then uh, in 5 to 13, God speaks to the servant. Then in uh, a long section from 49, 14 to 50, verse 3, God turns and speaks to us. And then finally in 50 verses 4 to, to 9, the servant speaks to us again. It's a conversation, a three-way conversation between, between uh, God, the servant, and us, though we are almost silent in it. Just occasionally you'll find the voice, our voice, as it comes up. We're being allowed to eavesdrop. 
on the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and what they jointly think of us. We're being allowed into a relationship. That's what I want us to see this morning, an intimate relationship that God uh, the Father and God the Son have with each other and that they long to have with us. First of all then, verses 1 to 4, the servant speaks to us and he really says something quite surprising. He says, have I failed? He says, I've got all the right credentials. I was called by God, verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he was made mention of my name. He says, I was equipped by God as well, verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And he says, I was commissioned by God for this task. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But, says the servant, in my darkest moments, I wondered whether even these credentials would give me success. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. It's easy to see how people could think this was just Isaiah speaking, isn't it? But it's not. Undoubtedly, Isaiah did have such feelings, but somehow he has been given a prophetic vision of the innermost thoughts of Jesus. Now, I've noticed something. I've noticed that uh, the people who achieve the most in this world are often people with the deepest sense of, of failure. And one of my one of my heroes was a, a man called Saint Boniface. He uh, he was born in my hometown in Crediton. That's why I uh, uh, love him. And he was actually in the eighth century one of the most important evangelists in uh, European history. But he died a deeply disappointed man. Or someone you may have heard more of, Leonardo da Vinci ended his life utterly disillusioned. His paintings were decaying, his writings were unpublished, his inventions were ridiculed. He wrote in his notebook just a few months before his, his uh, death in rather embarrassed print. He wrote, we should not desire the impossible. Some of the most surprising people actually in the end Wrestle with thoughts of failure. I wonder whether you do. If you're young, I wonder whether you, you live with that fear of failure. If you're old, I wonder whether you live with a sense that your life could have been lived better. The extraordinary thing that Jesus lets us in on here is that the Son of God felt that too. When we pray to him about that sense of impotence and weakness and disillusionment that most of us feel sometimes, you know what he says back? He says, I know how you feel. He says, as I walked this earth, I was tempted by those thoughts too. Stands alongside us, you see, and, and fulfills 
this, this need that we have to, to have a relationship which shares hopes and fears. Only this time, this is with the Son of God. He says, in my innermost heart, I struggle with that. But he says, I found this compensation, verse 4, yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. He says, I had to trust God too. Well, it's not surprising if he had to, then we need to too. That's the first thing the servant does. He speaks to us, and he speaks to us almost as a friend alongside us sharing his innermost thoughts. But then God takes over. God starts in verses 5 to 13, speaking to the servant. And God says a quite extraordinary thing in verse 6. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept. No, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. We've seen how Isaiah oscillates between uh, saving Israel and saving people from every nation. But now we have a clue as to why God might intend to save people from all nations. He says, the nobility of my servant is so great that to save only one nation is way below his dignity. He says, my love for the servant is so great that to give him a gift of only one nation is way below the love that I feel for the servant. So God says, actually because of my desire for you, Jesus, to give you a great gift, I will make rulers who initially despise you worship you. Verse uh, uh, 7. Let's stay with a page. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servants of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And he says, I will make you into a great and powerful saviour. This is what the Lord says, verse 8. In the time of my favour, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people restore, to restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritances to say to the captives, come out to those in darkness, be free. Now there's a thought. Do you see what God's saying? He says, he says, if you're a believer here, if you uh, uh, are a Christian, then you are part of a love gift from God to Jesus. God saved you partly because he said, I will save him and I will save her. I will save uh, to gather together an innumerable throng of people, old and young, rich and poor, black and white, male and female, strong and weak, healthy and sick. I'm going to give all of that great mass of people to my servant Jesus for him to save because I want to give him a great gift in all of eternity. That will reflect his nobility, says God. That will reflect the love that I have for him. 
Isn't that extraordinary? The love that God has for Jesus is part, at least, of God's motivation for saving his people. Well, then in verse 14 to chapter 50, verse 3, God turns from speaking to the servant to speaking directly to us. And he does so again in intimate terms. He actually uses mainly a picture of the family to help us to understand what he's saying. We need to remember that, that Isaiah is speaking to people who felt abandoned by God. These people were languishing in exile. But then verse 14, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast, he says, and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget him, I will not forget you. Isaiah's uh, imagining people on the uh, lonely hill of Jerusalem. Speaking of its desolation, he, uh, he uh, uh, gives... Sorry, I'm getting, uh, getting myself confused. He imagine, imagine Zion. You see, he's speaking to Zion, verse 14. Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. That is the, that's, the, that's the hill on which Jerusalem stands. Imagine Jerusalem being absolutely desolate. And he gives that answer. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Though she may do so, I will not forget you. We've all heard uh, terrible cases uh, just occasionally of infant abuse, haven't we? all heard about uh, uh, how babies sometimes are, are terribly hurt and abandoned. Uh, a very large proportion of those cases are abused by step-parents because the birth mother of a child finds it uniquely difficult to damage her own child. Well, says Isaiah, she may do that even just occasionally. But I won't damage you. I love you. I'm speaking to you as a loving father, as a loving mother almost. And then he turns to this uh, city, to Zion again. And he says, verse 16, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, the city of Jerusalem, are ever before me. Your sons hasten back. Those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes, gather around. All your sons gather and come to you. As sure as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments and put them on like a bride. He's mixing his metaphors there. He's, he's, he's describing them as like uh, sons coming back home like a, like, a, like a bride celebrating at, a, at her marriage. But he's, he's wanting just to give us the sense of this family being reunited, being preserved, coming back into relationship with God. And he says, it's not actually going to be just the story of the miraculous preservation of this family. No, I'm actually going to multiply this family so that uh, uh, they won't even fit into that old city of Jerusalem that has been deserted. Verse uh, 19, 
Though you are ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people. Those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. And you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? See the picture? The city itself is confused. It witnessed the decimation of Israel. They were sent into exile in Babylon and uh, Jerusalem's walls were lonely and broken down. But now God is going to return his people to himself. Where have all these people come from? These multitudes that are actually greater than the original numbers? Verse 22. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you, their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. The people are going to come from all the nations, from peoples who had never even heard of God before. Even those who knew him once, but since they'd lost their relationship with him, will be welcomed back into the family. Chapter 50, verse 1. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? There is no certificate of divorce, he says. She may have been sent away, says God, but not, God never actually initiated divorce proceedings because of your transgressions, he says. Your mother was sent away. There was no obligatory sale. God has no creditors, he says. Now, he may have let them be to go for a while, but that was because of their sins, not because of his bankruptcy, because of your sins you were sold, he says. Now, he can buy them back at any time, he says, and I will. Those who felt that their relationship with God was severed can find it reversed, can find that they can come back to God. What a brilliant set of pictures, aren't they? I mean, perhaps, perhaps you're a Christian here, and, but you have lost confidence that God really does care for you. Well, says Isaiah, God cares for you more than a nursing mother cares for her baby. Now, perhaps, perhaps you're clear in your mind that you're not a Christian here and you doubt that you ever could be. Well, the extraordinary thing God, is that God adopts all sorts of people into his, uh, into his family. Actually, with, to the complete surprise sometimes of the existing people of God. Have you noticed that? The, 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 uh, the, the city of Jerusalem is pictured in verse 21 as saying, Who bore me these? You know, who brought these up? Where have they come from? Great picture, isn't it? 
I can tell you, it is just possible, if you're not a Christian here, that the Christians that you know cannot believe you could ever get converted. That is possible. Because we lack faith. We're, we're rather, we're rather um, uh, weak people like that. But I tell you, we can learn. God can do that to our surprise. So that we will be found amazed that God could ever have spoken to you in a service like this this morning and reading an ancient prophecy like that to an ancient people. You sense that he's doing that. I'm not in the end, surprised. Oh, my jaw may, jaw may drop a little bit. As God says, he does surprises. Such that even the people of God are taken aback. Or perhaps you're one of those people who uh, feels that you once had a relationship with God but effectively divorce proceedings have been started. No, they haven't, says God. I've not filed any papers for divorce. You've not done anything that means that I can't buy you back. And I intend to do that. Because I love you. That's what God says to us, then. Remember, the servant has spoken to us, and God has spoken to the servant, and God has spoken to us, and now the servant speaks again. And in chapter 50, verses 4 and 5, we find the servant much more buoyant now, the end of this conversation much more enthusiastic. Verse 4, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. Almost like the words of Jesus in John chapter 12. I did not speak, says Jesus, on my own accord. The Father has sent me, who has sent me, commanded me what to say and how to say it. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That's what the servant's saying here. Because Isaiah is looking forward to Jesus. But the servant is going to be more than a faithful teacher. Yes, he is even prepared to suffer for us. Verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Remember, we began with him speaking like an intimate friend, confessing that, he'd almost, uh, that he almost felt as if he'd failed. But now he speaks to us as an absolutely committed friend. I am prepared to teach you, he says, exactly what God tells me to teach you, and I am prepared to suffer for you. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? Can you imagine him? Um, 
as he was beaten by the Roman soldiers on the last day of his life, saying to God in his heart, I accept this because you and I, Father, are committed to these people whom we love. I offer my back to those who beat me. And can you imagine him as he hangs on the, on the cross, look, looking down on the people mocking him and spitting at him and saying, this is worth it, God, because I am saving people like these people from their sins. I do not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And now he says, despite those self-doubts I may have had, I know that this plan is going to succeed. Verse 7, Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. No wonder Jesus cried on the cross the moment before he died, it is finished. Almost as if Isaiah has seen all that, isn't it? The man who taught his people faithfully through his life, the man who was beaten, the man who was mocked, but the man who knew as he died on the cross that God would win a great salvation through it. Now, they say a love triangle is destructive, don't they? They say that actually one person always gets pushed out in a triangle and hurt. But here is a love triangle, an eternal love triangle, which is absolutely secure. Jesus says to us, because, of, because I love you, I do this, but also because I love the Father and trust God the Father. And then God says to us, because I love you eternally as your people, like a mother loves her baby, I will send the servant Jesus to you, but then he turns and says to the servant, because I love you so much, I will give these people to you. It is a perfect triangle of mutual love. And if you trust Jesus Christ this morning, you are the recipient of that. What greater security could we have? What more intimate relationship could we have and God the Father, and God the Son, prepared to share themselves with us. And now, says Isaiah, I leave you with two simple choices. He says it is quite possible to reject that relationship. It's quite possible to listen in on this conversation that I've just had and then to ignore it, to uh, uh, abandon any intimate, secure relationship you may have 
uh, with me and actually to pretend to go it alone, to fill your life, he says, with, with uh, your own light so that you can walk on your own. You can do that. Verse 11. Now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires, he says, and the torches you have set ablaze, gloriously alone, gloriously self-illuminated, setting out your path ahead of you with great triumph. This is what you will receive from my hand, he says. You will lie down in torment. But then he said there is another way forward. You could accept that relationship. You could accept that that, that, that three-cornered conversation has you as one corner. Great recipient of the love of the Father and the love of the Son. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? and obeys the word of his servant. Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now, at a great uh, moment of national insecurity at the beginning of World War II, in uh, the Christmas broadcast of 1939, George VI quoted a, a hitherto unknown poem by a lady called Louise Haskins. You know, I suspect Haskins had been reading these very verses. She understood what they meant. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we've spoken about very important issues, very serious issues this morning. We, we've considered how quite extraordinarily you stooped down in the person of Jesus Christ and offer us both eternal life and an eternal relationship. Please, Lord, let none of us let that offer slip through our hands. If right now, Lord, we haven't accepted that, 
And we pray, give us honesty. Give us openness. Let us not shy away from what you say to us. And if, Lord, we have accepted that and perhaps accepted it long ago, make that relationship fresh for us, we pray. Reassure us of your love for us. Reassure us that our salvation is secure partly because of your love within the Godhead. God the Father for God the Son. Please, Lord, give us deep peace in our hearts and let us walk with you. In Christ's name, Amen.